Well, if you'll hold your finger in Revelation 6 and go to Matthew 24, we're going to read one more passage. Um, and while you're doing that, I just want to apologize to Jordan and Shannon. They're our fifth pregnancy that I neglected to mention. Let's pray for Jordan and Shannon this week. They're, they're heading in for, I believe, an ultrasound. So um, let's pray that their, their uh, pregnancy will be healthy and, as well. We're going to read Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. This passage serves in many ways as a template for what we're going to see in Revelation 6. So what Jesus said would happen and what John sees is happening are one. Matthew 24, verse 3. And as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for these must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then... They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. While often attributed to Augustine, this saying actually comes from a German Lutheran theologian in the early 16th century, 17th century. The phrase occurs, to the best of our knowledge, in a, in a tract on Christian unity that was written around 1627 during the Thirty Years' War, which was a bloody time in European history in which religious tensions played a significant role in that conflict. The saying has found great favor throughout the last, really, 400, 500 years among Puritans like Richard Baxter and has even been adopted in our modern day as the motto of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Now, why do I bring up the motto in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. It's because we're in Revelation 6. The interpretation of the first five chapters of Revelation among God's people is fairly unified. Chapter 1 is clearly a picture of Christ and the glory of the gospel. Chapters 2 and 3 are letters to the churches that are addressed both to believers in the first century and also apply to us today. Chapters 4 and 5 offer a picture of God the Creator and Christ the Redeemer on their glorious throne. They picture a glorious God and a lion-like lamb who has conquered sin and death and the grave and who has authority to open the scroll and take it from the Father's right hand and bring the kingdom of God to ultimate consummation in the world. So chapters 1 through 5, are, there's a lot of unity among God's people in terms of interpretation. But when we come to Revelation 6, we reach a point where divergent views are begin to be expressed regarding the book of Revelation. 
And I want to remind us this morning that when we come to passage like, passages like Revelation 6, there is room for liberty. There are many non-essentials here over which Christians can disagree. There's freedom for different thoughts and convictions on these things. Now, it's good for us to have convictions. I have them, and I'm going to share them with you this morning. Even strong convictions about non-essential things. But we also need to realize that not every issue is of equal importance. So we approach Revelation humbly, knowing that different people will have different views on different things. And we need to leave room for good and healthy and honest discussion of these things, but never for division over these things. It would be sin for us to divide fellowship over any non-essential issue, whether that be moderation with the use of alcohol or a particular view of homeschooling or public schooling or a particular interpretation of Revelation chapter 6. And in both essentials and non-essentials, remember the motto, we above all are called to exercise love for one another. The goal is never to win an argument. The goal is always to love our brother and sister in Christ. So before we get into Revelation chapter 6, let me remind you up to this point that we've already seen a pattern of sevens, okay? Seven letters. Now today we're seeing seven seals, or at least the first six of them. And in the next few sermons, we'll hear about seven trumpets, and then we're going to read about seven bowls, and so on and so on throughout the book of Revelation. Now, everyone recognizes that seven is a crucial number in the book of Revelation, and that there are at least four sets of sevens, the ones I've just described for you, the seven letters, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. This much everyone agrees on. But since there are plainly four sets of seven, Many scholars have wondered if we are meant to see seven sets of seven in the book of Revelation that form the shape of the book. I'm convinced that there are seven sets of seven, but I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic about it. So my outline will look something like this. I believe it'll be displayed on the screen behind me. First of all, in chapter 1, verse 9 through 322, we have seven letters. We've already been there. Then we have seven seals. That actually begins in Revelation 4 with the vision of God the Creator, and then in chapter 5, God, Christ the Redeemer taking the scroll out of his hand. Chapter 6 will begin opening those seals and unfolding it, and those will conclude in chapter 8, verse 5. Then we come to seven trumpets in 8, 6 through eleven nineteen. Then we come to seven more visions in chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 4. Then we have seven bowls in chapter 15, verse 5 to sixteen twenty one. We have seven judgments in 17.1 through 19.10, and then we have seven last things in 19.11 through 21.8. Seven sets of seven. Now you'll notice the book of Revelation doesn't end at 21.8. It continues for another chapter and a half where we are presented with the beautiful bride awaiting her husband uh, in 21.9 through 22.21. That is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice there's an eighth section, and this is not a seven. Now, an eighth section makes sense because eight is often the number of new creation in the Bible. Jesus rose on the eighth day, or the first day of the week. Eight people started the new humanity after the flood. Sons were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And this eighth section is about the new heavens and the new earth. It's a new moment. But there's nothing really inspired about that outline. It didn't come down from heaven. John didn't reveal it to me this week 
or no angel came to me and said, Mark, here's your, here's your uh, authoritative outline for Revelation. It's just one way of making the book more manageable and putting together some possible patterns with some more obvious ones. Now, I say all this to remind us that the arrangement of Revelation, remember, appears to be cyclical, not chronological. What do I mean by that? It means it comes back to the same things and the same themes over and over again and is not merely just intended to be read as a day-to-day account of how the kingdom of God unfolds in the world with one thing happening after another chronologically. If you try to read chapters 6 through 22 of Revelation as a chronological order of events, you're going to get really confused. Because John repeatedly moves from one vision to the next by using a phrase such as, after this, or after these things, or then I saw. But you need to remember that these phrases only indicate the sequence in which John saw the visions, not necessarily the sequence in which they occur. So try to think of it with an analogy of watching a football game. All right, Imagine cameras positioned at various places in the stadium. There's one on the field. There's one on the quarterback. There's one from a drone circling above the stadium. If you were to watch that game from each camera's perspective, not bouncing back and forth, but just watch the game from the, 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 the field perspective, the quarterback perspective, the above the stadium perspective, my guess is You're still watching the same game, but they're all going to provide different points of emphasis. This is much like Revelation. Each section of John's book is like each of the many cameras that are placed throughout the football stadium. In each section, John is describing, generally speaking, the same period of time, just as each camera is recording for us the same football game. But we see different things about the same game depending on the perspective from which we're viewing it. So think that the cycles in Revelation repeat and reinforce each other. Each cycle, whether it's the seven seals or the seven trumpets or the seven bowls, describes similar themes and even similar events from different perspectives and in different ways. And taken together, they form a complete picture. So the visions in Revelation gradually build toward a climactic ending, a consummation. They don't just say the same thing over and over again. Instead, they build on one another as each one intensifies truths and themes that we've seen in others, but they add different details to emphasize different things so we get a more comprehensive picture of what God is doing in building his kingdom in this world. Now, as we saw last week, the scroll itself that the Son of God takes from the right hand of the Father represents all of human history. And I take that to mean that the seals, then, are the events of all of history. Just as the scroll represents the whole totality of human history, so the unbreaking of the seals represents the events. They reveal God's judgments and his final salvation. There are seven seals because they represent all of human history. Remember, seven in Revelation is a number indicating completeness or fullness. Now, I differ from some in church history as I see these seals as representative of all of church history from the resurrection until the second coming of Christ. 
in chapter 6, verse 1, John transitions from the worship of God the Creator in chapter 4 and the worship of Christ the Redeemer in chapter 5, the one who holds the scroll and the one who's worthy to open it to actually opening it in chapter 6, at least the first six seals. As we'll see in chapter 7, there's a break, and then chapter 8 picks up the seventh seal. But there's a reason that chapter 7 is a break based on where John is in the vision, which we'll get to. Now, I turned you back to Matthew chapter 24 because I believe what is revealed to John in Revelation 6 follows the pattern of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 3 to 14. Now, while I believe that Matthew 24 is largely concerned with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, it is also clear that temporal judgment, that temporal judgment is a foretaste of the eternal judgment to come. And Jesus is weaving both events together in Matthew 24. He's talking about the immediate destruction of Jerusalem that's coming from that point in about 27 years, and also what is happening as, a, as that, that temporal judgment being a picture of what will happen at the end of the age when Christ returns. So the seals are interpreted in various ways, but I take them to include the events that will characterize, as I said, the time period between Christ's resurrection and his second coming. So, with all that said, with all that background given, I appreciate you indulging me on a little bit longer intro this morning. I believe the purpose of this chapter of Revelation 6 is to explain what Christians should expect in between Christ's two comings. So that believers aren't surprised by the sufferings and difficulties that permeate this life. That's why the chapter's here. What can believers expect before the second coming of Jesus? That's what Revelation 6 answers. What can believers expect before the second coming of Jesus? We're going to answer that question this morning. And since there are six seals, there'll be six points explaining each one of the seals. Let's start with the first seal in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now Revelation 6, 1 through 8, contains the famous four horsemen. Not the Notre Dame team, nor the wrestling group of the 1980s although they're named after this particular aspect of Revelation 6. But they, they picture four different activities that will characterize life in this world between Christ's first coming and his second coming, specifically focused on believers. Now, the first horse in Revelation 6 is a white horse, and I believe it represents deception, a spirit of deception in the world. Now, it seems significant to me that the only rider on a white horse in Revelation is not a deceiver. It's Jesus. Revelation 19, 11. Many, therefore, see this first horse as representing the spreading of the gospel to all nations. And I have absolute respect for that view because not only is it founded on the, the, the idea of the white horse and who's riding on it in other parts of Revelation, but also because it's consistent with Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, that promises us that in the midst of all that's going on, 
Christ has ransomed and redeemed a people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and they will be saved. It's also rooted in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So I have absolute respect for that view. They may very well be right. I'll give you reasons why I'm not totally persuaded, but I have absolute respect for it and would have no problem uh, agreeing with that view in some ways as a, as a principle and as a truth. But others see the horse as representative of military conquest because they base it on the background to, to, to Revelation 6 in Zechariah 6, verses 1 through 8, which I don't have time to turn you to this morning. But there, the white horse symbolizes military conquest and victory. And so both of these views, that the white horse is the gospel triumph of Christ and the white horse's military conquest have exegetical foundations, they're held by good reformed people, they're held by biblical scholars that, are, that know their stuff, but I take a slightly different view that's held by also a number of biblical scholars. I believe this first writer represents a satanic form of deception that's attempting to defeat and oppress believers. Now here's why. I'm going to give you a few reasons why I take that view. The horses in Zechariah 6, I do agree, are grouped together as one and are evil in nature. So it's hard for me to see how one can be separated from others as one who does good. Okay, all the ones in Revelation, Zechariah 6 that form a background to Revelation 6, these four horses, are all doing evil things in the world. So if you're going to be consistent and see Zechariah 6 as evidence for good being done in the world, namely the gospel triumphing, that would seem inconsistent because the other three horses aren't. So why would one do good and not the other? Another reason is because Revelation 12 and 13, when we get there, portrays Satan as a, as a deceiver. He deceives people by imitating the appearance of Christ. Thus, the white here can be seen as one who appears to be righteous. That would be consistent with 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, where Satan masquerades as an angel of light. A third reason is because, as we will see, the first four trumpets and then the bowls of Revelation bring parallel judgments, and the same is likely with the horsemen. When we get there, that will be more strongly reinforced, I think. But finally, and I think my main and most persuasive reason, for me at least, to see this as a spirit of deception, is because this is what Jesus says first in Matthew 24. Remember, I said that Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14, form the background of Revelation 6. And deception is the first of the judgments that is mentioned. And it follows the exact same order as we see of the other five seals. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, Jesus starts with this. He says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. During this age, Satan is intent on destroying the church. And he tries to do that by leading people astray through false beliefs and false behaviors, and he will do this in the name of Christ if he can. We're seeing this all throughout. Not only the world, but our own country. And I'm not talking about what's happening politically or culturally. I'm talking about what's happening in the church. The church has got to be on guard against a spirit of deception which will often show up in the name of Christ. 
and say, receive me as Christ would. We saw this in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 with the particular temptations in the church. They'll try to baptize certain ethics, sexuality, different preferences. Jesus made me. Jesus approves of this. Jesus is fine with this. Or different belief systems. You don't have to hold to the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. I mean, that's so narrow. Various other ways. Different forms of deception will come in and will sound plausible. They sound to be consistent with the nature and purposes and character of Christ. But we have to test all things by the word and hold fast to what is good. Second seal, war. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Revelation. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So when the lamb breaks a second seal, a red horse is summoned. Peace is taken from the earth. Strife and warfare is stirred up. This corresponds well with what Jesus says immediately after he talks about deception in Matthew 24, where we read in verses 6 and 7, And you will hear wars. And rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That comes right after deception. Now looking at the 20th century alone, the fact that war dominated that century should not surprise us. It's what Jesus said would happen. In fact, we're at a little bit of a respite in the United States from any war, but we'll surely get back in one soon because we've always been in one for the most part throughout our history. And this is characteristic of human history in general, not just our country. Hitler and Nazi Germany were responsible for the deaths of more than 6 million Jewish men, women, and children. Mao and China slaughtered tens of millions of his political enemies. Pol Pot ruled over a country, Cambodia, which at the time had some 10 million citizens. He slaughtered more than 2 million of them, one in five. Joseph Stalin killed more than 20 million of his own citizens. Some say the number is actually closer to 30 million. And all this in the 20th century alone. It'd be impossible to account for all the wars and civil conflicts since the first century. But Christ tells us to expect them in this age. If you just begin with the civil war here in America, more than 640,000 died. 41 million from a variety of countries died in World War I. Over 60 million died in World War II. More than 1.3 million, both civilian and military, died in the Vietnam War. Globally, there, and I'm skipping over Korea, but globally there were 3,168 conflicts between 1870 and the year 2000. War and strife will continue until Christ comes again. Jesus tells his followers, expect it. Expect a spirit of deception, also expect war. Thirdly, third seal, famine. Look at Revelation 6, 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now when the lamb breaks the third seal, a black horse comes out with scales in his right hand. Obviously, weights, measurement. Food is being measured out, but it is inadequate for the needs of the people. 
a denarius was a day's wage, but one could only buy a quart of wheat or three, three quarts of barley for it. The sparing of oil and wine may mean that the rich continue to live in luxury or that famine doesn't touch all the necessities of life, just part of it. While it's not a picture of total poverty, it is a picture of scarcity. Not only of starvation, but also of inflation. You should be able to get a lot more for a day's wage than a quarter of wheat or three quarts of barley. But that's what it costs. So what Christ is saying is this age will be marked by economic difficulty and problems, scarcity, famine. Don't expect riches and luxury. We are, believe it or not, an anomaly in the history of the world, the West, that is. Christ tells us, expect economic downfall. Expect to lose your job because you're a Christian. Expect to be overlooked for promotions. Expect injustice. Expect unfairness. Again, Matthew 24, 7. Immediately after Jesus talks about deception and wars, he says this, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Sometimes the earthquakes are the cause of the famine. The toll taken on humanity by famine, in fact, brothers and sisters, if you don't realize this, is even worse than war in world history. Approximately 2.8 million people in France that it's 15% of the population of the country starved to death between 1692 and 1694, which was just a span of three years. In 1695, famine struck Estonia, killed a fifth of the population. In 1696, nearly a third of the population of Finland died as a result of famine. And it's still the case today with one in seven people living on less than a dollar a day and experiencing great need for basic necessities. Fourthly, death, the fourth seal, verse 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come, and I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now the fourth and final rider Riding a pale horse clearly brings death, is what's said in the text, largely through pestilence or disease. In the Greek Old Testament, death translates the Hebrew word for plague 30 times, including twice in Ezekiel 14, which is, the, which is one of the Old Testament backgrounds for Revelation 6. Now, this is obviously indicating death by way of, 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 of disease and pestilence and plague, survey some of world history in this regard for you. The Black Death, or the bubonic plague, began in the 1330s somewhere in the East or Central Asia. Most likely rats that were infested with fleas carried the disease to Europe and North Africa, and between 75 and 200 million people died, more than a quarter of the entire population of Europe and Asia combined. In England, four out of ten people died, the city of Florence lost 50,000 of its 100,000 inhabitants. That's half of the city's population. In March of 1520, when the Spanish fleet arrived in Mexico, the population of our southern neighbor was 22 million people. Eight months later, only 14 million people were still alive. That's right, in eight months, eight 
million people in Mexico died in 1520. The culprit? Smallpox. Within 60 years of the arrival of Spaniards in Mexico, the population dropped from 22 million to less than 2 million. Then we also in, we have the story of the British explorer James Cook when he arrived in Hawaii in 1778. The Hawaiian Islands were densely populated by a half million people at that point, and Cook and his men introduced flu, tuberculosis, and syphilis to Hawaii. Subsequent European visitors brought typhoid and smallpox, and 75 years later, there were only 70,000 survivors in Hawaii. In January of 1918, the so-called Spanish flu struck soldiers in the trenches of northern France, and within a few months, about half a billion people were infected with it, nearly a third of the entire population of the earth at that time. Experts differ on the number of people who eventually died, but they range anywhere from a low of 50 million upwards to 100 million deaths. And then, just on a lesser scale, but no less significant in some ways, COVID-19. The statistics, as of earlier this week, 109 million cases worldwide, 2.4 million deaths, 27.7 cases in the U.S., million cases, 27.7 million cases, in the U.S., 486,000 deaths, 394,000 cases in Kentucky, 4,500 deaths, and over 9,400 cases in Davis County with over 150 deaths. Brothers and sisters, plague, pestilence have been going on a long time. I mean, people talk about, you know, COVID-19 is a once-in-a-century kind of thing, but yeah, most of these are. <laughs> most of these are once-in-a-century kind of things. Jesus told us to expect such things. The judgments that are brought through these symbolic horses, that is all four of them, are told to wipe out a fourth of the earth. Now again, that's a symbolic number. Don't ever take numbers in Revelation literally, okay? That's where you get into all kinds of exegetical trouble. It's not literal. It's just meant to be a, a good portion, okay? It's not like, well, we're, when we're going to get up to the 25%, then we know Christ is coming back. No, don't do that kind of stuff. It'll get you a book deal, but it'll also lead many astray in your name. And that won't be well in the day of judgment. James 3.1, many of you not ought to be teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment. I wouldn't want to be writing those books. Nevertheless, the point is that these pestilence are experienced throughout the world. All natural disasters, whether floods or famines or locusts or tsunamis or diseases, are a, as John Piper says, a thunderclap of divine mercy in the midst of judgment, calling all people everywhere to repentance. COVID-19 is sent by God to call the earth to repentance. That's why it exists. I can't tell you the hundred other millions of things God is doing, but that's crystal clear from the Bible. Your life can be snapped out in a moment. Repent and get right with God. That's the point. That's the point of all of these things. Realign your lives by grace with the infinite worth and glory of God before it's too late. Fifthly, martyrdom. The fifth seal. Look at verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then they were given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God's got a number of martyrs. All believers are persecuted, and some suffer to the extent of giving up their lives for Christ. But even though the enemies of the gospel kill the bodies of these saints, they cannot kill their souls as they live on in heaven right here. And since precious is the sight of the Lord, and the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, Psalm 116, verse 15, we are told here that God knows the exact number of the martyrs. He gives each of them a white robe. R.F. and Kathy Kahn have received one. They're martyrs we know, are new, and will know again. And they're eager for God to avenge their blood, which was taken in Pakistan. Not for their own sake, but for God's glory and for the advancement of his gospel. Again, Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. See, Jesus is walking through Revelation 6 in Matthew 24. He's giving us what to expect. Jesus says, expect deception, expect war, expect famine, expect death, expect martyrdom. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Mark, the writer of one of the Gospels who was killed, he was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Luke, who wrote another gospel, was hanged on an olive tree by the idolatrous priests of Greece. According to tradition, Peter, one of the Lord's twelve disciples, was crucified upside down. And this has continued down to today. Throughout history, Christians have been fed to lions, burned at the stake, beheaded, and shot. In fact, more Christians were martyred in the 20th century alone than all other centuries combined. In the previous century, we have documented cases in excess of 26 million martyrs. From AD 33, that is the point in which Christ rose from the dead, to 1900, we have 14 million documented martyrs from that point. Now, if you're wondering how common martyrdom is, best estimates are that more than 100,000 Christians died for their faith during the past decade. This means that on average there is one Christian killed every five minutes. That's astonishing to me, if that's the case. But nonetheless, it should be not surprising in the sense that Christ taught us to expect it. Sixthly, the sixth and final seal in this chapter, verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The sixth and final seal in this chapter is judgment. As the sixth seal is open, the martyrs are assured that their prayer, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood on the earth, that their prayer will be answered. 
John sees the judgment to be poured out on the wicked in the final day, and the end signaled, is signaled with an earthquake, which is a regular feature of final judgment in the book of Revelation. Chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 13. Chapter 11, verse 19. Chapter 16, verse 18. The world, as John sees these seals opened up, is literally dissolving before John's eyes. All the joys of life are vanishing and are seen as worthless as the world collapses around him. People in the chapter asking for mountains to crush them since they would rather be smashed underneath a rock than have to face God. Again, this is the way Jesus ends Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Four horsemen, that representing the totality of the whole earth. He's going to gather his saints from everywhere and bring them safely to him. All right. Those are the six seals. Now, what do we learn? Four things quickly. First of all, brothers and sisters, there is no room for utopian visions of life in this world, no matter what political party is telling you it's possible. And both sides do it. That's how they get reelected, you know. Jesus has come and brought salvation. The gospel will be proclaimed and the church will be built. That much is certain, but Revelation 6 disabuses us of any notion of heaven on earth. But take heart. There is a reason Revelation 4 and 5 comes before Revelation 6. God is on his throne, and Christ holds the scroll. John 16.33, therefore, is true. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world... You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. These horses are not wild. They are saddled and bridled by the king of kings. Second, believers are not exempt from the sufferings of this life. Believers are not exempt. 2,000 years of church history and the book of Revelation alone shows that the health and wealth prosperity gospel is a scam. It's a product of bad hermeneutics, money, the love of it, and over-realized eschatology. Deception, war, famine, death, martyrdom will be characteristic of life in this age, according to Jesus not according to your popular preachers on television. All the things we think are signs of the end, Jesus says, they're common. Don't think the end is yet. That's what he says again and again in Matthew 24. The end is not yet. This is common to human history. This is the beginning of the birth pains. This is the start of labor. you got hours, years, centuries, millennia to go before all this is done. The four horsemen have been riding out across the earth since Christ's resurrection and will continue to do so until he returns. 
Yet, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be able to cope with whatever shakes our confidence because Christ has everything under control. Three years after the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, with many fearing what the age of the atomic bomb might bring, C.S. Lewis said in 1947, words that we still need to hold to today, brothers and sisters, He said, if we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. COVID-19 can do that but they need not dominate our minds. We got work to do. We need to worry about this stuff. Let the world worry about it. We're part of an unconquerable kingdom. If we die, we go there. Thirdly, as Jim Hamilton says, this passage is here to prepare us for martyrdom. This passage is here to prepare us for martyrdom. He goes on to say, Do you know how to prepare for martyrdom? Soak yourself in the Bible. Cling to its promises. Live in the world, live the the way the what the live the world that the Bible describes, not in line with the world that rebellious, rebellious humans invent for themselves. Read the Bible like you might be martyred for it. Pray like you would would if you knew they were going to kill you for it one day soon. Preach the gospel like you might lose your life for doing so. Immerse yourself in the life of the church like your life depends on it. Love your spouse like you would if you knew that she may be widowed for your devotion to Christ. Hold your kids and teach them the faith like there's no tomorrow. Live like there's something worth dying for. Put it in your mind. God, Christ, the Bible, these things are worth more to me than life. Life without these things not worth living. When we're choosing whether to study the Bible and pray or to turn on the television, we need to ask What if in five years from now they're going to be demand that I renounce the faith or die? When we go online or shop, when we decide what we're going to do with our extra time or money, we need to factor into our consideration, will this matter when they come to me? We got to get ready. Now, I'm not not a prophet of doom. We live in a relatively free country. That may be generations away. But nonetheless, brothers, don't let the American dream become the American nightmare lull you to sleep and spiritual indifference so you abandon Christ. Walk away. People are doing it now. You know some of them. And therefore, point number four and finally, we need to realize not everyone's going to make it. Not everyone's going to make it. Jesus said, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Matthew 24, 10. Matthew 24, 12 and 13 And because lawlessness will be increased. Is that happening? Lawlessness increasing? You worried about what's going to happen in the culture? You need to be worried about your soul first. Lawlessness is increasing. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Will you grow cold? Your soul can get as icy as that temperature out there toward the things of God. Will you endure to the end? Can we have any security? 
That's why Revelation 7 is in the Bible. And we'll come to that, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, we bow in humble submission before the realities of your word, recognizing that though these things are true, we are not up to the task. You have not revealed these things to us so that we would pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps or say, I'm going to do more and try harder. You have revealed these things to us to show how profoundly weak we are before the forces that have invaded this world due to our sin. We are helpless before deception unless you keep us from it. We're helpless to not grow cold and abandon you in the face of war and famine and death and martyrdom, judgment, if you will not preserve us. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. So Jesus, this morning we pray, save us in the midst of these seals. As this course of world history unfolds, save us. Save us. Save us. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. Restore us. Inflame us. Empower us. Pa create a passion to live and love to your glory, to cling to you, to hold to you, to value you, to gather with the saints for the purpose of encouragement and support, knowing that we grow cold, that we can grow hard, that we can grow indifferent, that we can drift. We need each other so much. Lord, help us to hold on to these things, the Bible, Christ, the gospel, the church, like our life depends on it, because it does. We ask all this in the name of our strong and invincible Savior, who has promised that if we are in his hand, no one, none of these seals will be able to pull us out. We are thankful for your saving and protecting grace. In Jesus' name, amen.